I feel I need to I need to start today with a bit of a trigger warning. Yeah, even though I won't, it won't be the, the main topic of my reflection today, not directly, but I will refer uh, to issues of, of sexual abuse, racial profiling, and institutional brutality. And statistically speaking, it is not at all unlikely that some of us here today have some story somewhere in the spectrum of experiences of abuse, of violence, of racism. So to those of you for whom this might be a trigger, know that even, even if I don't know your story, I hope to treat it with respect and dignity and the care that it deserves, and I hope that it will be okay for you to stick around. So whether you experience something of the sort or not, you have probably heard the story before. After a night out in the city with friends, a young girl suffers sexual abuse, perhaps even rape. Someone crossed the boundaries of her very self without her consent. And as she stands at the police station or the courthouse or perhaps even her family living room, someone starts with the questions. How were you dressed? How much did you drink? How late were you out? And the underlying question, is, it's not really that subtle, is it? Whose fault is this? At a dark parking lot behind some fast food restaurant somewhere, right. overworked and underpaid police officers approach a dark-skinned colored man. Black, brown, who knows, in the dim light. They shout at him to get out of the car. Immediately scared and fearful, he asks what is going on, but they take his question as a defiance of their authority, and they scream out louder. In a panic, he runs. And as his mother cries over his dead body, somebody starts with the questions. Why was he there? Why didn't he obey quietly? Why did he run? And the underlying question is really not that subtle, is it? Whose fault is this? A blind man sits on the sidewalk with an empty cup of coffee on the ground in front of him. And even while they drop a few coins in that cup of coffee, of coffee people ask to themselves, or perhaps ask to each other in whispers, whispers sometimes disguised by pity language. Poor fellow. Why should he need to beg? Why is he in this situation? Did he not have access to better options? Did he not seek for proper help? Wasn't his family supporting him? Who did something wrong? Who sinned? The man or his parents? Whose fault is this? Maybe you heard the story. 
I was in Brazil recently. I'm from Brazil myself, and and I was there recently, just a few weeks back, after a long four years period in which we hadn't been there. And there's always something nostalgic about going to Curitiba, right, to the, the city where I grew up. But this time, there was a particular flashback from my childhood and, and teens that was not at all a pleasant one. And that was just the sheer amount of people begging on the streets. It was a familiar sight, but it was one that I wish had stayed in the past. It was, it was like that in the 80s and especially the early 90s. It was like that. Most traffic lights would have someone asking for, for money, asking for alms, or perhaps selling some insignificant trinket to sort of justify their begging. Then things got much better for a while, or at least it seemed so, but as is so often the case, tough periods of political and economical turmoil, they hit the poorest, the worst, and now they were there again. All over the place, almost every traffic light. And Curitiba, where, where I grew up, being a city particularly keen on hiding its poor, means that each corner with a beggar had also a sign from the city hall, from the municipality, stating, children want a future, not alms. Right? Alms is just money, like leftover cash you give, right? Children want a future, not alms. And as I sat there in the car, I thought, well, that sounds good. But I wondered if that future would somehow come back and feed their empty stomachs that very night. Sometimes I would give them some money. Sometimes I would close the window. I don't know the answers. I don't know how to solve this. I don't know what's the silver bullet here. And I will not make any excuses. I do hope that these stories make us uncomfortable. But my question today is what do we do with our discomfort? Last week, we talked about a God who is moved. A God who lets himself be moved. We talked about Jesus meeting this Canaanite woman who insists with him. And this God who allows himself to be moved. And we were challenged to allow ourselves to be moved. And when we are moved, it interrupts our inertia, right? It interrupts, it unbalances the status quo, the, the state of things. And my, my question today is, what do we do with that? Do we try to fix the disruption I described this blind man with a cup of coffee so that we could visualize him in our, our own sidewalks. 
But some of you may have found strange the question, who sinned? It's not, it's not a, phrasing, a phrasing that we often use nowadays, right? To go around looking at the beggars and ask who sinned. But blind beggars are not a new thing. And they are as home in our streets as they were in first century Israel. And we find them also recorded in the pages of the gospel according to St. John. And I want to read it with you. Gospel according to St. John, I'm on chapter 9. As he walked along, he saw a, bland, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud on, uh, with, the, with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eye, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am he. But they kept asking him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, a man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Asked him, He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews. And when John speaks the Jews, might as well make that clear right away, he's talking about certain group of religious authorities. That's a shorthand in the Gospel of John. It's not talking about all the Jews. 
Just make that clear so we don't misunderstand this. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called a man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God had spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. This is a, a very dense story, a very rich story. We could say many things from it. We could spend days talking about it. We could focus on Jesus' power in healing. We could spend time painting the Pharisees as a particularly petty group, and in that way, put some distance between them and ourselves. But what I want to do today is to call our attention to something that I believe John and Jesus are doing here. When I say John and Jesus is something you hear me talk often about, right? John is telling the story of Jesus, but John is telling it in a certain way. He's bringing up these stories in a certain pattern. And he's using language for certain reasons. And there's something that I believe that John and, and Jesus are doing here that goes far beyond this particular healing. They are challenging the status quo. And they are challenging how it often has a lack of mercy and grace embedded into it. Now, understanding the way in which they challenge the status quo goes through understanding John's theological use of the creation narrative in his way of telling the, the gospel. And it goes through understanding how this conflict and many others pivots around the issue of the Sabbath. So the gospel writer, the gospel teller John, he makes throughout his gospel a theological argument and a, a lightning, almost a linguistic argument, a poetical argument from the way in which he uses the creation narrative. And what John does in short and essentially is that he takes language from the creation narrative of, of, Genesis, of what we know as Genesis 1 and 2, right? The poetical language speaking of the creation of the world, and he brings the story of Jesus together with that with all these different handles. And he's, that's how John starts the gospel, right? 
He doesn't start it like the other, many of the other Gospels writers start by telling the story of Jesus. He starts by using this language of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, with, was God. And the Word came and became flesh and made its dwelling among us. And John, throughout his Gospel, keeps on using this language that is language of the creation of the world and of the beginning of times. And he uses that language to speak about Jesus. And then he speaks about Jesus and brings in this poetry of the creation. And with that, John is putting an argument. This Jesus is one with God. Right? This Jesus is from the very God of creation. And here, in, in the context of the gospel of John, we have another expression that is dear to John which is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Right? And that's a part also of the creation narrative. I think there were darkness, there was chaos, and God said, let there be light. And from then on, things start happening. And here we have John saying, or in the beginning of the gospel, we have John saying, I am the light of the world. The light came into the darkness. And here Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And then he brings something else, right? He says, when, when, when Jesus meets this man, how does he heal him? And this only happens a couple of times in all the Gospels. Several times, Jesus just heals, and that's it. But here, something very physical, very concrete happens, right? Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud with his saliva, and he puts it on the mat. And if we, th if we remember the, the, the language of the creation narratives, you have this image of God creating man from the mud and shaping him with his own hands and then breathing his life into it. Right? So in the context of how John uses this story, when Jesus is doing this mud exercise, this is connected. This is the creator God in some way present. And then we also have verse 32 where you have these people arguing and saying, or, or you have the blind man saying, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. So here we have John playing with this uh, creation narrative to speak about Jesus as God. And then you have the issue of the Sabbath, and these things come together. So, what's the issue here for those of us who don't, who are not necessarily familiar with it? The, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders are taking issue, or at least that's their excuse, right? With the healing because it happens on a Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, as it counts, with so a Saturday for us, right? And it's the day in which religious, in which, uh, Orthodox Jews were supposed to withhold from any work. So you don't work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day dedicated to the Lord for observance of God. You should do no work on that day. And this comes from the creation story. God creates the world in the poetry of Genesis 1. He creates the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rests. And then this gets picked up in the Mosaic Law, and the Law of Moses. You shall keep the Sabbath. That means you shall rest on the seventh day as a day of marking what God has made and honoring that 
and marking your commitment to God. What happens then when the day of rest becomes the day of restoration? Jesus, with the creating power of God himself, making mud, the light of the world, makes an act that John connects to creation itself on the day of rest. And suddenly, cracks start coming in the system, right? And hypocrisies start being enlightened. And suddenly we see that religious observance has taken precedence over that which it should observe. The whole idea of the Sabbath is that you would, that God rests and looks at creation and says, this is good. It is a rest with an eye towards the goodness of God in everything that He created. But suddenly it becomes an inward thing, right? It becomes religious observance for the sake of religious observance. Just by having these keys, these small interpretation keys into the Gospel of John and how he's telling this story, suddenly we can see that there are two narratives or two efforts here. One is the effort of reestablishing the inertia of the status quo. How do we deal with this disruption in order to bring things back into a balance that works for everyone, right? The blame questions, they serve this effort. Who, who sinned? This man or his parents? Who are we supposed to fix so that we can get back to business? and keep our Sabbath and not be disrupted. How are you dressed? That's how can we put blame so we can get back to business? The rigid Sabbath keeping serves this effort. It doesn't matter why we're observing, it just matters that we do it so we keep the wheel running. And this effort goes along with the narrative of the disruption of an established goodness or an established uh, holiness that is firmly fixed somewhere in the past or in dogma, in the law, in the creation story, in the Sabbath. And our job is to keep it there, untouched, and not move it. The other effort is the effort of disrupting the status quo. But actually, I don't think it's even about that. It's not disrupting the status quo for the sake of it. It is the effort of grace and the effort of mercy. In contrast, more than opposition, to this 
dynamic, this effort from the Pharisees and from the whole system to say, like, what, what's, what's wrong here? So how, how can we put it back so that it continues working? Right? How can we not mess up with that which was said to be good? In contrast to that, Jesus and the blind man speak of a forward-looking perception of God's grace. And John as well. This new creation perspective. This perspective that because what God saw in creation to be good doesn't mean he isn't bringing new goodness into the world. Doesn't meaning, doesn't mean that there isn't new possibilities and new efforts of goodness and of creation and of redemption. Of a God that can now, can act now to create possibilities of a better now and a better tomorrow. Rather than trying to reestablish something long gone. And in this, there is a translation issue in verse 3, which I think is particularly important. And we read in, the, and I read from the NRSV and the NIV, it's very similar. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. There's been so much discussion about this, and it is somewhat of an unhappy translation because it, it can make it feel like God made this man blind so that he could then heal him and get credit for that, right? And that is very complicated. But a better translation would be, or this, this little part, he was born blind, that's added, that's not in the original text. Right? So the original text is more like, uh, neither this man nor his parents sin but that God's work might be revealed in him, we must work the works of God. So that it does not say, in that sense, that he was born blind so that. It does says, here we are, and from here, we must do something. We can do something. God's works can be revealed. All of this, John brings into his language of light and revelation. And he's all the time playing with this, of Christ as being this light that isn't recognized by all, but is there in the darkness and is creating anew and is bringing new things and is having possibilities of redemption, of recreation, of a new tomorrow. This man, it's interesting, isn't it? His healing, <laughs> he's healed from his blindness, which excluded him from a great part of the social and religious life of the community. Because there was a cultural association of sin with disease. This man being blind could not partake in fellowship offerings. He could not go into certain parts of the temple. He had no social security. He had no religious inclusion. Right? 
And then he's healed. But his healing is a problem. <laughs> and in the end, he is excluded again by the rigidity of the system, right? Why am I saying all of this? Well, our social and our religious arrangements, they often sacrifice the weakest and the poorest of our society for the sake of stability and for the sake of the status quo. We know that, right? We don't like talking about it because we don't know what to do with it, but we know it. That for us to live as comfortably as we do, a lot of people don't. That I have the possibility of closing the window of my car and cutting out the voice of the beggar, he does not have that option. But it keeps the peace, right? You put a sign saying kids want a future. <laughs> sure. Mercy and grace disrupt this system. And they disrupt the system because they will rather relativize the system for the sake of those who are suffering than relativize the suffering for the sake of the system. And history has shown that religion, and very much the church for that matter, can both challenge deadly status quos and can maintain them, right? The church has condoned slavery for ages. The church has also been a main actor in challenging slavery. So where are we in all of this? What do we do with stories like this? When we read a story like this, hear a story like this, and make this man's story nothing but his story, We dishonor him, and I believe we dishonor Christ. We hear this man's story and say, well, that's great. He was healed. Let's carry on. Also, when we make it anything less than his story, like a story of someone with life, we also dishonor. So one question is what we do specifically with the situation. Another question is how we work as a community of faith to challenge death-abiding structures of the status quo. Now, I don't know. I said this in the beginning, right? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to solve this. I don't know how to fix this. But I know we need to be troubled. We need to hear the stories and we need to give them honor and let them move us, and let that movement, we need to fight that tendency to want to hear it and then let it settle so that we can go back. For most of us in this demographic, in this church today, going back to business works. It's fine. 
We're good. It doesn't for a whole lot of other people. So how do we look beyond the, the good stories, the healing, the Instagrammable thing, or whatever we do, and how do we talk about dignity? How do we talk about belonging? How do we talk about inclusion? But also, how do we acknowledge that this is complex, extremely difficult, but do not allow that to become a structural excuse? And that's my problem with those signs on the traffic lights in Curitiba. The argument is nice, but it so easily is a structural excuse. Right? Kids need a future. They don't need alms. Yeah. But now what? What do we do with this? I don't know, but we have to keep it coming. And as we go through the season of Lent together as a congregation, as we talk about wildernesses, how's the plural of that? <laughs> about wild, different expressions of wilderness, as we talk about echoes, that has been our theme, right? We've been talking about that. This perception of being in a space in which you speak and you're asking, is there someone there? And our faith tells us there is. A God who cares and makes himself flesh, makes themselves uh, present. And we also, through faith, believe and declare that we as a community of faith are part, a significant part of that being present of God in the world. So as we talk about that, we need to talk about this. And that's, that's what today is all about. We need to talk about being moved to tears and to actions. We need to be talk about being bothered. We need to keep on asking what's up with our structures. And I don't know, because we are very good at looping, you know. We try to fix something and we fall into a new one. But that's also why we need this. And that's also the power of the gospel and of the scriptures. The power to bother us again and again. So whatever our concrete task is today and tomorrow, part of our task as a community of faith in Jesus Christ is to let these stories move us and not take them for granted. Is to let these stories challenge us. Is to sit with the discomfort. And hopefully to figure out some things we can do. After this man is excluded, the story goes on. And it says, John tells us from verse 35, that Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. And we can, again, discuss a lot of things here. But as we finish this time together, I'm thinking about what Jesus does in verse 35. And when he found him. So Jesus goes looking, right? After this man again gets excluded for different reasons. Jesus goes looking. Maybe Maybe we don't get to change all the systems tonight. <laughs> Are we looking? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, today, tomorrow, and every day of your lives, the days of darkness and in the days of joy, that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord, joyfully.